This week on Life and Faith. I think that the best route for people to take action or to become involved as a conservationist of any kind is via love and connection and knowledge of your place and investment in your place. Coming out of the pandemic, a million people have died. I felt like he was speaking to me in that rebuke. How do we get along? How do we connect one another? What are we here for? Those kinds of questions. And that was what enabled him to commit murder. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, these days, compared to when I was young at least, we are much more aware of and engaged with the huge challenge of caring for the environment. Climate issues, pollution, waste, plastics, and the way that modern life is designed in such a way that we seem to almost inevitably cause harm to the ecosystems and the natural environment around us is front of mind in a way that it once wasn't. But do you ever feel powerless in the face of these huge challenges and wonder whether we can ever work in harmony with the planet rather than against it? Today we'll talk with someone whose childhood was spent living in community with people who cared deeply for the physical creation and actually felt they could do something about these challenges. Jo Swinney is the author of several books and we'll talk about her latest today. She grew up the daughter of Peter and Miranda Harris, who in 1983 formed, along with some others, the Christian environmental group Arosha. Now, this was a time when the church was not known for its interest in creation care, and we'll ask Joe about that today. Joe was five years old when the family moved to Portugal to start Arosha, and much of her formative years were spent there. And she's connected again now as Director of Communications at Arosha, that these days is an international family of Christian conservation organisations operating in 20 countries. Jo's book, written with her mum, A Place at the Table, Faith, Hope and Hospitality, was born out of real tragedy. I was at Theological College with Jo in the early 2000s in Vancouver, Canada, and we hadn't spoken since then. I caught up with her from her home in Bath in the UK. Jo, it's so good to see you there. Thanks for being with us. My great pleasure. I want to talk about Arosha. It was formed by your parents, Peter and Miranda Harris, I think 1983. Now, you were about five years old at the time and you moved to Portugal where you spent your early life before going off to boarding school in England. Now, we're going to come to all of that in a moment, but I do want to just first up straight off the bat, ask you to tell us about Arosha. What is it? How did it come about in the first place? Uh, So first off, Arosha means the rock in Portuguese. And it came about um, because a few people, my parents included, they're always keen to say that they were two among a great many people. My dad says that he was born with binoculars around his neck. He absolutely loves birds. And it's a gene I haven't Um, inherited from him but uh, I can testify that he is never unaware of the birds um, in any given context so he in my early life trained as an Anglican um, vicar in the Church of England and during that three years my mum because there were three of us under the age of four at that point sent him off for some respite to look at birds in a field study centre in Sweden. I would have thought your mother needed respite not him. 
Well, I know. <laughs> Shall we talk about <laughs> feminist concerns for a little while? Um, so, yes, he off he went. And while he was there, he met someone um, who shared his passion for birds. And they were talking over dinner about the potential community that was forming around um, these common interests of um, the natural world, but also this kind of shared community that was growing around the table each evening as all the people there from many different walks of life and nationalities would sit down and share their stories and what they'd seen that day. So they hatched up between them this idea. And in 1983, very few people, least of all the church, were concerned with any kind of environmental issues really it was seen as quite a fringe um hobby almost so they had some things to contend with but um my dad is and was a real visionary so he managed to get enough support to set off to southern portugal and the reason for choosing portugal was that it's come out of um, a dictatorship not long before and there was this massive boom of industry and tourism and infrastructure development going on particularly in the south where the beaches are very lovely but it's also a major migration route between north africa and europe and very fast the usable habitat for wildlife birds lots of biodiversity was being kind of gobbled up um, turned into hotels and golf courses and marinas so that's why there um, and the reason was love of the natural world, concerned to see it disappear, but also as Christians, they believed that the church shouldn't be part of the problem, but part of the solution, because the understanding within Christianity is that God created and cares for deeply everything that he's made, not just the humans. These days, Arosha is in 20 countries around the world, where you have groups of people often living in community and caring for their part of the planet. This is a clip from an Arosha promotional video. My name is Ursula Poto. I live in Switzerland. I am the national director for Arosha Switzerland. So when we think about something small, um, it's often very negative. We think about something which is uh, insignificant, which is powerless, uh, which... Um, which just can't make a difference, which you're not even going to notice. Um, but in fact, um, there's a completely different story behind there because small things can have a really incredible, enormous impact. I think that for me, um, for a long time, I didn't realise how badly biodiversity was doing. Biodiversity loss is, is such an enormous problem and I didn't actually feel like I could do anything about it to start with. It just felt like something which was completely outside of my reach. Yeah, I think um, realising that, uh, that we can still do something about it is uh, already a really big thing. Often we think that we have to wait for the politicians to make the changes or the, the big guys to do the stuff and that that's what's going to create the impact. My name is Stanley Bayer and I work with Arosha Kenya. My main work at the moment is land purchase for conservation in an area called Dakacha Woodland. Uh, Dakacha Woodland is the only other ecosystem where you find the Sokoke Scops owl and the Clark's weaver apart from Aramuko Sokoke Forest. 
And because we are a small organization, we were really overwhelmed by the rate at which the forest was getting lost. What does Christian thinking have to contribute to this kind of activity of caring for the earth? Well, I think if people are honest, there's always um, a belief system behind behaviour. So it's to do with aligning your stated belief system with your behaviour. So for, for Christians to say they love God, but then absolutely trash or disregard what he has conveyed as of deep worth and importance to him is completely dissonant. There's no, it's, it's hypocritical at best. Uh, it's foolish and ignorant at worst. So I think what they were trying to explain by doing largely, because there's an awful lot of words in the world, um, they wanted to quietly just get on and do the right thing because it's the right thing, but also shine a light on the coherence of doing the right thing for, for the reasons that the Bible and the kind of faith world of Christianity is an imperative to do that. Did you see, witness, real progress in terms of healing of damaged environments? So our little plot was, I think, about four acres that we lived in this farmhouse with grounds. But the area of focus for Arosha, Portugal, was a headland and the marshes alongside it. If you look now... Uh, on Google Earth, it's extremely obvious that Arosha has been there mm. because it's flourishing. My dad had this obsession with planting indigenous seeds around the place. And we always used to mock him a bit because they were like his little babies. And every evening we'd have to go and check on each little one and like <laughs> water it and weed it. And many of these are now full grown trees. Yeah. So you can actually see from space yeah. that this place has been cared for. I have to say it's an ongoing battle because it's prime real estate and the interests of greed and money and a quick buck are there in human nature for everyone. And the people who took over and have been this Portuguese leadership there and Marcial, who lived on the headland, has post-traumatic stress because uh-huh. of the constant threat of development, but sometimes really nasty, nasty personal threats of of violence. There's ongoing political shenanigans. There's, you know, for every bit of protection they gain, it's one step further and it hasn't been destroyed yet, but it's, it's an exhausting and continual battle to protect that headland. And as a child, I'm not a bird watcher, but I love that place with every cell in me and I still do. And I remember um, this one day we woke up and there was this beautiful vineyard in front of the house and we woke up to trucks raising it like yeah. digging it up and yeah. yeah it was devastating and they kind of I absorbed some of that fear over whether it could be kept safe and fretted and prayed for it and I think that's the thing I think that the best route for people to take action or to become involved as a conservationist of any kind is via love and connection and Mm. knowledge of your place and investment in your place. So the importance of the Alvor Estuary is that in a very small area, it has 18 different habitats, three of which of um, priority conservation importance. 
This is Marcial Falguera from Russia, Portugal, where he has been working for over 20 years. Again, from a video explaining the work of Arosha. He has over 500 species of um, uh, vascular plants, over 300 species of birds, well over 600 species of moths, and 75 butterflies. It's a tiny little piece of heaven in such a small area. So I was there in the estuary for 20 years uh, running the center. We saw people growing in maturity in their faith. We saw couples forming and, and now having children uh, and all that. We saw students who were undergraduates and now they are uh, professors at university and working with us and uh, helping us to develop studies on all this. Back to Joe Sweeney here. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk with her about is how the notion of caring for the environment seems so overwhelming and too big a problem for any of us as individuals to do much about. I asked Joe what she would say by way of encouragement to people feeling like that. I've recently discovered this biological concept of refugia, and I'll tell you the best example of it, but what it means is that once you stop actively harming an ecosystem, a small piece of the environment, there's enough surviving in a small area to re-propagate itself. It's incredibly resilient, the world. And so the example of it um, was Mount Vesuvius. Um, the whole top section of the mountain was destroyed by the earthquake. And when it had all cooled down and been left long enough to be um, judged safe, this group of people went with the intention of renewing it and it had there was enough surviving under little cracks and crevices that by the time they got there it was all fine again Mm. so I think it's not about thinking about the whole world it's about doing the right thing at your arm stretch like your space and none of us needs to save the world again from the Christian worldview the world has a savior it's for us to do the right thing moment by moment not because it's going to add up to the final thing, but because it's the right thing. And perhaps that right thing, even at a tiny scale, will be the thing to make a difference. This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Joe Sweeney from the UK. Joe grew up in the Arosha community in Portugal and other places. Arosha is a Christian environmental group and Joe had a fascinating upbringing with people from all over the world who were committed to caring for the planet. In this part of the interview, we shift a bit to a subject close to her heart, hospitality. She wrote a book with her mum called A Place at the Table. You'll hear about that extraordinary book and how it came about. It was born out of tragedy, actually. But it's also a beautiful story, too. Here I ask Joe, what's the link between the scientific environmental work and that notion of welcome and hospitality? They do seem to go together at Arosha. The thinking behind it at the beginning, the conceptual kind of piece of that was that it's a lonely business to be in um, so deeply invested in one species or one place and to deal with the threat of damage to that thing and that kind of quirky in-depth passion for something that not many other people might share so there's 
um, there was a sort of functional thing of making it, giving it longevity because people had fellowship in that and the kind of fellowship of the ring kind of sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it also partly came down to my mum's makeup and what she had to bring into the mix because um, I have to use a past tense here. We haven't touched on the fact that she died, but yeah. she um, absolutely naturally mothered I think I want to say mothered people and loved people through food and was able to create an atmosphere like never was there a meal table set without a candle <laughs> kind of thing so yeah. I think that entered the DNA via her and it's continued on so Arosh is now in well 20 countries we've got established organizations there's um 80 standing waiting in some way shape or form to come and join the family so we have these five organizing commitments we call them so that's christian conservation community cultural diversity and collaboration Mm -hmm. so community the hospitality community piece is right embedded well let's um I don't want to talk about that and your mum because the, the hospitality bit, because your, your latest book is written with your mum, a place at the table, but it's not written in, with your mum in the way that we might have expected. It's a book, as you write, born out of deep darkness and grief. Tell us about that. Well, in 2019, in October, my parents, along with the chief executive of Russia International, Chris Naylor and his wife Susanna, they were in South Africa supporting that Russia South Africa and they were on their way back to the airport to head home and there was a road traffic accident and mum and Chris and Susanna were all killed. So obviously that's enormously shocking. My dad somehow made it out of that and he was in a coma for an induced coma, I should say, for 10 days on a ventilator and everything. And very soon after he regained consciousness in the ICU, he kind of gave me this mandate to get my mum published. And um, things said at that kind of a time have a lot of weight, don't they? So I was feeling somewhat um, obligated. (laughs) And as background, mum had talked about writing a book endlessly for decades (laughs) And so I think he was just thinking, like, she can't finish that. And it felt like one of the big unfinished things. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the only unfinished thing. Because in many ways, she she went out in a blaze of glory, very resolved. So and there, there was a lovely way, there's a lovely way that came about, too, I guess. It's worth telling us because uh, cleaning up the house gave you a big surprise. Yeah, so we were doing her study sorting it all out and then lo and behold there's this binder labeled the book (laughs) and there was her her thoughts and her outline and a whole load of writing and notes and I could then see what I had to work with and around that organizing of hers she was an amazing archivist so and she handwrote everything so bear in mind all of this is handwritten Back in the early days, she used to send out these kind of prayer updates and letters, but the postal system in Portugal in the 80s was not reliable. So she'd go off to the paper shop and get a photocopy and then file the photocopy. So we had such a lot of material to work with. And I was just reading it through with the kind of organising themes of food and relationship and community. Um, Probably could have made lots of different books out of what she wrote, but... 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a beautiful book. And I think it must have been a very amazing experience for you to be grieving the loss of your mum and at the same time sitting alongside her, in a sense, as you wrote this book together. It certainly has that feel. Yeah, it was very strange because for a long time, while I was at school and after, my relationship with her was mediated via these handwritten letters. So... I did very much feel like I was sitting there with her. Um, Dad gave me access to some of her journals as well. So there were things about her that I found out for the first time. There were times that I um, needed to stop and sort things out with her because like, I would feel like I can't carry on until I've had a fight with her almost or, yeah. or asked her for forgiveness for something or seen something for the first time from her perspective and not my own. Yeah. So... I was writing it just over a year afterwards, so it was quite raw, and my dad was in a very bad state still, and my daily kind of burden was to care, not burden, privilege as well, but so it was a, it was a, an incredibly intense task to do, but I did feel like I had this additional piece of time with her. Yeah. And it's funny because quite a few of people who love her haven't worked up the courage yet to read the book even, so... It's kind of been validating to me at points. I was like, I don't know how to to do this anymore. I had to do it in three months as well. So it was a very, very intense period. And um, I've just realised that it's not really surprising, I suppose, that I found it that hard. No. But one thing I discovered was she was in very funny. <laughs> she was. I knew she was funny, but I found her very funny to read. And also she'd kind of underplayed how much of a force she was in getting this thing off the ground she kind of used to sort of imply that she was like the support team far in the background you know showing up with sandwiches but she wasn't she was she was level pegging with everybody in every level of what had to happen to start this thing off so I I felt enormously proud of her to read that. Community is a big theme in these books and something we struggle with in modern life, and you're very committed to it, but it's hard too, isn't it? Proper community is costly as well as rewarding. Yeah, anytime you get close to another human, there's every reason to expect it to go very badly wrong at some point. <laughs> um, I would say that I grew up in a very particular kind of community, you know, borderline commune, really. And I've come to realise that the definition is much different. It's committed life together, to use a title of a man called Bonhoeffer. It's relational fabric of of your day-to-day. And a lot of times people want to self-select those who are going to be easy. And as someone who is a Christian, I feel compelled to be less selective to almost give more time to the difficult cases. Having said that, nobody wants to be a charitable um, project. So I think if you don't have genuine affection and um, warmth towards a person, you probably shouldn't be their community because <laughs> they'll know that they're a project pretty fast and it will be damaging. But yeah. I think what I'm trying to say is community seems to me now just the choice to step from isolation into engagement with others. And and yes, that is enormously challenging for introverts, extroverts, for anybody. But worse is isolation because humans are not designed for that. 
and loneliness causes all kinds of havoc physically mentally emotionally it takes more years off your life than smoking so i don't think we have much choice but to try for connection (laughs) both a place at the table and your book home seem to be kind of inviting us to consider what it means to belong is your interest i wondered if your interest in this subject partly comes from a sense of wanting home and not ever quite feeling it. Yes, I mean, I'm sure. But don't you think that's a universal human yeah, condition? I do. I just wanted you to tell me what it's like for you. A big part of my experience is, is moving mm. a lot and having the people around me move even when I'm staying put. So people and places, that's the kind of building blocks of belonging. So I have had to wrestle through how much is within my gift to create belonging for myself but also for other people and at one point in my life in my early 20s I was in a bit of a nihilistic phase of thinking it's just not possible and I'm going to kind of make a virtue of being rootless and I was given a very strong challenge by a professor um, where I was studying at the time just to consider plant life and how the function of roots in a plant and it was it was a kind of an obvious metaphor I suppose but it hadn't occurred to me um just as plants need roots so people do like you just can't dangle around in nothingness and so I've tried even when I know I'm I can't no none of us can guarantee staying somewhere forever and if we do it won't stay the same even the geography of it might well change but just moment by moment be this is where I am, this is where my life is, this is where my relationships are, this is the little piece of yard that I have to try and look after. <laughs> um, and I will love it, even if it might be very hurtful later, because I might have to say goodbye to all of it. The welcome of hospitality, the warmth and the sort of the love of that, you, you would say reflects the love of God the welcome of God that you experience. In, in what way does that belief undergird the things that you wrote about in both of these books? I think um, what I understand is that God gives us this unbelievable belonging, unconditional really, conditional only on on wanting that relationship with him. And the main way he seems to have chosen to show himself to people who don't know him yet is through people who do know him and so there's a kind of natural shaping of our characters and our lives around this interaction with the holiness and the character of God but then there's more of a kind of deliberate ask of us to behave in ways that will introduce people to the nature of God so from very tangible care of people feeding them and caring for physical needs underlying that really is is giving people love and it's amazing how many people don't expect that from life or from Mm. anyone other than their family who has to love them and it does make an impact you can see the kind of initial wondering what's behind it and what's the trick or what's the are they going to have to give in return but over and over again in my life I've seen that followed by this kind of settling in and um, soaking up of it and an acknowledgement in themselves it's something that they've needed and then sometimes that is then 
followed by a recognition that it's God whose love they're receiving and whose love they need the most. Mm. So that's the connection for me. One of the things you write about your mum was that as an act of hospitality, she was able to be vulnerable and open with people and honest about her struggles and her weaknesses. I wonder if you could touch on why that is such a hospitable act. Because it's the giving of yourself. It's allowing people access. It's like taking someone from your front door into your hallway into the room you spend your time in. It's that difference of welcome into a deeper place. And then that's often reciprocated. If people find out how messy you are, there's a shame lifted from how messy they are. And so then you have true connection. So I think that the fact that she was quite transparent in some ways caused a lot of people to then form relationships with her who maybe didn't come naturally to. One of the people who got in touch with us around the time of the funeral was the guy who sold um, coffee from a little van on one of the stations that she used to go from often. And um, he had come to feel that they had a a relationship, that they had a friendship of sorts just from those kind of interactions over time because she was constantly like... Well, we used to, we used to find it quite irritating sometimes as children because you'd go into the grocer or the butcher or something and she'd say not only that she needed like six sausages or whatever but who they were for how she was connected to those people how long they were staying for and then she'd want to know about um the butcher's children and how did that haircut go for that one kid and um it was constant like knitting of her life with other people's lives yes and one of the aspects of that that I thought was really interesting was the gift of time to someone as another act of hospitality. And again, we're so hurried and harried these days. That does become an actual gift, doesn't it? Yeah, it's probably our most precious resource, isn't it? Mm. Utterly non-renewable. And how often do you try and find time to talk, to book a phone call or something, and you end up putting it in, in your schedule for... 12 weeks away or something it's it gets silly so when when people do like stop what they're doing and give you full eye contact and like say let's have a cup of tea right now let's just do it that lands as something very precious doesn't it this has been life and faith with me simon smart thanks so much for being with us Jo Swinney is the author of a number of books, including, with her mum, Miranda Harris, A Place at the Table, Faith, Hope and Hospitality, and also Home, The Quest to Belong. Both books are highly recommended. Thanks so much to Jo Swinney for our conversation today. And thanks, as always, to our producer, the unrivaled Alan Douthwaite. Please leave us a rating or review. Do it now while you remember. It helps us to get out to more people and spread the word about life and faith. Next week. She'll speak to me through here, and then I'll just repeat whatever she says. Not she. It. It is a machine. She wants to talk. 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 Talk to you. If I say no, it's just going to send someone else, isn't it? Probably. Probably.